BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Lightning is one of the most spectacular weather phenomena, but it can also be one of the deadliest. About 2,000 people across the globe are killed each year by lightning. You might picture a beach in the summertime when you think of lightning, but it can strike during various weather events. In the recent lake effect snow event for Western New York and Buffalo, thunder snow was heard many times due to the vigorous storm system. Today's guest, Jason Deese, is going to discuss that recent Western New York event, as well as other important information about lightning. Jason, welcome to the Weather Geeks podcast. Nice to be here. Thank you, Dr. Shepard. Look forward to uh, talking to you a little bit about lightning and especially the uh, thundersnow aspect. Yeah, we're going to get into all aspects of lightning. We're certainly going to anchor in the thundersnow, but we're going to talk about lightning and hurricanes and thunderstorms and various other things. But before we get to all of that, anyone that listens to Weather Geeks knows the next question that's coming out of my mouth for the guest. How'd you become a weather geek? Yeah, I've heard several episodes. So, yeah, great question. I actually it was down to being an astronaut or uh, coming into weather. And, uh, you know, I'm a, a child of the 80s and so grew up with all the, the space shuttle things. And I actually saw the last successful Challenger mission take off from Cape Canaveral. So I was all set on that astronaut path. And then, you know, the unfortunate events uh, there with the, the Challenger exploding. And I, I thought it might be a little bit safer route for me <laughs> with the, the, the weather aspect. And so I kind of uh, detoured and did that. But I was your your typical weather geek watching the Weather Channel, recording it, uh, grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina with uh, aspects of uh, winter weather, always looking forward to the snow aspect and coming through there. So, uh, yeah, just really just recorded the Weather Channel. I mean, had those little things coming up when I came home from school to watch it and, and see. So remember all those. I mean, it was surreal for me to give a talk a few years ago and uh, one of the former Weather Channel uh, personalities was there that I grew up watching. And I mean, just to give a talk to them, I don't know, it was just surreal to me. So uh, yeah, I'm a weather geek through and through for sure. Well, yeah, that's, uh, you just elevated weather geek them to a, a next level with recording. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's, I've certainly heard some stories before. I think that's the, one of the first examples of recording, but I'm, I'm right with you on watching that. Let me give you a little bit of uh, background on Jason Deese because uh, he's someone that I've known for a while here. Uh, I knew him first as a research and an operational meteorologist with the National Weather Service. Uh, he served from 1999 to uh, roughly 2021. But in 2021, he actually uh, left the Weather Service and founded a company called Flash Scientific Technology, Inc. And we're going to learn all about what he's up to with that company and what they're they're doing. Prior to that, he was an aviation meteorologist with NetJets and has a Bachelor of Science in Atmospheric Sciences and Meteorology from Florida Institute of Technology. Uh, he's a weather geek and he's a lightning geek too. So first off, let's let's talk a little bit about your company and tell us a little bit about why you decided to leave the National Weather Service and uh, found Flash. 
Sure, sure. So, you know, I spent 21 years with the National Weather Service bouncing around offices from Birmingham uh, to Tampa to Jacksonville and then the last 10 years here in Atlanta. And so, you know, all areas with prolific lightning. And that was always the number one request from emergency managers, government officials and the public, you know, is how do we how do I protect my citizens? How do I keep them safe at a concert? You know, when is this lightning going to form? When is this lightning going to go away? And a source of frustration, if you think about it, you know, the National Weather Service, they do a wonderful job. And I enjoyed my time there with them. You know, but we we forecast tornadoes, we forecast hurricanes, uh, forecast severe thunderstorms. But lightning was something that, you know, we was kind of out of reach. There wasn't any lightning prediction. And so we could always tell you where the lightning was and had been detected, but couldn't really tell you where it was going to go, where that first strike was going to go. And so that was, you know, and always a f- source of frustration with me. And then from a personal side, I have four kids, two girls who played softball. Just seeing them put in harm's way time and time again. I know you've been there. And, you know, I was the dad going on the field and pulling them off. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, I yeah. and so I was like, you know, we're, we're not doing this today. But, you know, it wasn't the umpire's fault or it wasn't the tournament director's fault. They were looking for a way. They, they wanted something to tell them, hey, it's not safe anymore. And so, you know, we had these good rules. I'm not going to call them bad rules. We have these good rules about waiting 30 minutes until the last rumble of thunder, but there's no science. There's no technology behind that. You could have a thunderstorm developing just as easily at minute 31. So what I did was I saw some of the different aspects of research coming together. I'm a, I'm a good big picture guy. And so I was able to cobble together the different aspects of research and develop an algorithm and get a patent for it. And I decided that, uh, you know, the government wasn't quite the right avenue to, uh, to get this new technology to the world. And honest to goodness, uh, Dr. Shepard, I was just looking to save lives. I knew this could save lives. So I left the weather service, started my own company, and now we're starting to monetize that as well. And so, you know, we're we're able to break, predict the first strike. You know, 40% of all injuries and deaths occur with those first strikes. And that's because people are trying to maximize their time outside. I do it as a golfer. You know, I'm trying to maximize my time outside and, and stay out too long. Uh, I would love to have something on my Fitbit or on my wearable technology that says, hey, you know, you dummy, it's time to get inside now. Lightning's here. And so that's what we've developed. We have alert capabilities now to tell you when the first strike's coming out. We have mapping technology that shows you where the lightning is going to be out to an hour very specifically and then out to six hours generically. And so we built this suite of products uh, that tells you on the safety side, you know, gets people inside before lightning strikes, but also from a monetary standpoint, we're getting into telling people when it's safe to go back outside. And, and, and from a monetary standpoint, not just safety, you know, airports, airlines, uh, we're helping uh, uh, doing some beta tests with big time airlines right now. We get these planes down faster, we get them in the air faster, and we save passengers time and money. And so uh, really looking forward to, uh, you know, how this how this plays out. But we've got some powerful products in the, in the realm of lightning prediction we're excited about. Yeah, no, I think lightning. I've I'm, I've also been that dad uh, before as well <laughs> when everyone else is just oblivious and so oh, look at the lightning and hearing the thunder and I was like no we need to get out out of here and get right, off the field right. and, kids. and so it's one of those things and I've written about this several times in Forbes as well I, I think people just misunderstand the danger that they're in in lightning so I really uh, resonate with what what some of your motivations were now before we get to the thunder snow event and recently in Buffalo. Sure. Let's do a little 101 because this people are probably like, why? It's it's wintertime. 
why are you guys talking about lightning? I mean, we had thunder snow recently, and I want to get to that. I won't even. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about lake effect snow in general, but let's do some basic one on one here, Jason. I'm going to throw a couple of just basic questions at you for our listeners here. So the first question I would ask you is, how does lightning form? Sure. So, you know, most people don't realize that, you know, in the in, in the summertime, you know, you think of everything as very hot and humid. And so you wouldn't think there was any chance or any ice to develop anywhere. But every thunderstorm we see, we actually have ice developing aloft. And so, you know, in that, that area well above the ground level, you know, at the ground level, we're 80, 90 degrees. But if you go aloft, we get temperatures that are minus 10 degrees Celsius up to minus 40 degrees Celsius. And so really, really cold air aloft is creating these uh, ice stones. And so there's this zone aloft where you can actually have ice coinciding with super cool liquid droplets. And so you've got the liquid and you've got the ice and you've got all kinds of different uh, types of ice that are coinciding in this same zone. And so uh, you have powerful updrafts uh, within these thunderstorms as well. And so that's creating all of this excitement among the, the ice and the super cool water droplets. And so as those interactions take place, you're actually getting an exchange of a discharge of the, of the ions and, and a buildup of charge. And so it's not just enough though to get those charges going. You have to have something at the ground level too. Uh, uh, to accept those charges. And so you get charges building up at the ground level all the time and in these skyscrapers that you see. And so that's kind of the basis of where these thunderstorms come from is these, this this ice development and, and the interaction with the supercooled liquid droplets. So you've got to have ice formation in order to get that lightning to develop. Yeah. And, and, and the, the geeky term that we talk about in the weather world is glaciation and yes. just these glaciated clouds. And, and I remember being in a barbershop one time talking to uh, the barbers there. And I was like, you know, this it was a warm summer day. And I was like, you know, that rain that's falling outside, it probably started as ice or, you know, there it maybe had some interactions with ice. I'm like, wait a minute, this middle of the summer, we talking about there's ice. So this distribution of, of ice and temperature and at the upper level and clouds is very important. But Talk to us about the, the sort of misconception that all lightning is cloud to ground. And certainly cloud to ground is what's most dangerous to us in terms of we're out on the golf course or fishing or on the softball. But uh, there are other types of lightning, right? There's intracloud, cloud to cloud and so forth as well, right? Sure. And, uh, you know, the, most of it does start as that intracloud or cloud to cloud. You've got all sorts of electrical activity going on within the clouds. And so to start out for a thunderstorm, you know, a lot of times it will just go straight to cloud to ground and this massive thunderstorms, but other times it builds. And so you get different types of lightning and just the cloud to cloud and cloud to ground. And I think the other misconception, you know, that you're probably going to point out is that uh, when we do get the cloud to ground, that it's coming straight from the cloud and going all the way to the ground, which is not necessarily the case. You've got this charge that's meeting up halfway. And so to the naked eye, it does appear like the lightning is coming from the cloud and striking the ground. But what's actually happening is you're getting these channels and these channels that develop, they're meeting up. And when these channels meet up, that's when you see the lightning flash and then you hear the thunder after that. So uh, I'll, there, it's a really complicated uh, scenario going on. I know Georgia Tech was doing a lot of work as well and charting these and actually showing. And it's a very complicated process as far as the channels that are created and, and what eventually becomes an actual lightning stroke. Uh, fascinating to see what all is going on. So to our naked eye, it's just a flash is coming from the, the, the cloud going to the ground. But that's not what's happening by any means. There's all kinds of processes that are happening in between. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. 
With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Jason Deese, the founder of Flash Scientific Technology Incorporated, talking about lightning. And recently in parts of Western New York, we had a fairly epic, and fairly is probably not even the right word, it was epic, right? lake effect snow event. I mean, I think I saw some totals in excess of six to seven feet of snow from that lake effect event. And I guess before we talk about the thunder snow, let me quickly do a little 101. Uh, So this time of year, the, the Great Lakes, for example, are still relatively warm. And if we get a certain fetch or direction of the wind oriented over the the length of the lake, uh, the the moisture and the convergence associated with that wind pattern can produce these really snow machines, I like to call them. They're like really prolific snowmakers, and they can be over really narrowly focused areas. But in this particular event as well, uh, we got lake effect snow and we had thunder snow. So, Jason, first of all, did you at Flash capture any of this thunder snow and, and lightning and talk about what exactly thunder snow is? Yeah, this this was a really interesting event for us at Flash uh, just because uh, it's such a unique event. And so I think of all the snow events that occur uh, in the United States, only 0.07% of them actually include thunder. And so extremely rare event. And so to be able to capture those rare events uh, is tough to do. And so with Flash, though, what we're able to do is we, you know, we're kind of agnostic when it comes to looking at numerical weather models and having to rely on those. What we do, we're a little bit different. We we use artificial intelligence, deep learning. So we're taking in 30 years of past data. And so we've seen 30 years of lake effect snows and we've incorporated that into our system. And so it says, okay, these are the conditions that are going to lead to thunder snow. And so when we see those conditions, you know that you can see the, the lightning pop up. And so sure enough, we were able to train our models in such a way that we were able to see the actual forecast out to an hour of lightning within this thunderstorm, despite it being such a rare event. And so we're really excited to see that. But as far as the ingredients go and what you were talking about that lead to thunderstorm, you know, there, there, there's really four components. In, in the summertime for thunder, we have three components. We have the moisture, and we have the lift, and we have the instability. Okay. Then you add this fourth component, which is cold air. You need cold enough depth uh, to make it snow. Then you're talking about four parameters that you need at the same time over the same area. And it's just extremely rare to get that. But we had the the, the perfect setup uh, there uh, in Western New York. And so, you know, we always have the moisture. Moisture wasn't hard to come by. We have the Great Lakes, plenty of moisture to work with. Temperatures, as you mentioned, 40s and 50s there. So plenty of warm air to work with. So we had the moisture, we had the lift, we had a little short wave coming across uh, a loft. So we had the, the lift necessary. Uh, we had the cold air in place, so it was 20s and 30s and to a depth uh, there in the western New York area. So that was in place. So we had that. So all we needed really was that instability. And, you know, we talked about those lakes being 50 degrees still. We had a great temperature difference between the lake at the surface and as we go aloft. And so if you can get that difference to be 25 degrees or in this case greater, you create this 
enormous uh, temperature profile, instability profile that can lead to thunderstorms. And so, you know, while it's it, it's very similar to what you would see in a summertime, just at a, a shallower depth, and uh, but just as impressive. And so, you know, we've seen Jim Cantori jumping all over the place in the videos. That's right. Shout out to Jim. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 this is why is because it's such a rare event, you know, and to, and to be able to capture that and experience that, uh, you know, is remarkable. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've heard about thunderstorm, I don't think that I've experienced. It. I lived in uh, Maryland for some time, so uh, I don't recall experiencing it. But I understand that the thunder that's produced by the lightning, and as a reminder, for, I know most people that are listening to Weather Geeks know this, but I did hear at least one television commentator. One time I'm watching a baseball game saying, oh, wow, it's thundering, but it's not lightning. So we should be OK. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I, I cringed as I listened to that because clearly we know that the lightning is causing the thunder. But I, I know that there's a muffled sound often with that thunder because of all the snow and perhaps the insulating effects, though, or the muffling of the, um, the, the sound. Is that something that you're familiar with as well? It is. It is. And it's just been recently that I, you know, understood a little bit more about the actual seeing the lightning as well during these uh, thunderstorm events in terms of the snowfalls falling at a rate of two to three inches per hour. So it's not as a, not as easy to see the actual flashes of the lightning either uh, during these events. So you get the muffled sound uh, from the snowfall. And so it's not quite that boom that you would hear uh, from a normal thunderstorm. And then the the infrequency of the actual lightning during the the thunderstorm event itself. So I know they did some events out in Colorado where they actually charted how much uh, you were seeing. You're only getting like 50 strikes per hour, whereas in the summertime, you know, you're going to get thousands of strikes per hour uh, from a from a typical thunderstorm. So again, not just a rare event, but you know, the the lightning is rare even within the event. Yeah, this is a really, really good point. I'm talking with Jason Deese from Flash Scientific Technology. So that's really a place that maybe some people don't think about lightning. From from your sort of expertise as a, a lightning uh, guy, a meteorologist, but certainly who focuses on lightning these days, where, where are some of the most electrified places in the United States and around the world? I mean, I, I know the hockey team, the Tampa Bay Lightning, is in Central Florida, so I bet that is one of the uh, right. most flashy places in the United States, for example. Uh, but where are there the most electrified places here in the U.S. and globally? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Florida is definitely a hot spot with your sea breezes. I spent a lot of time, you know, I got my uh, education down there in Melbourne, Florida. So I spent a lot of time there in the Tampa office. And so they have the sea breezes that collide and they're in Tampa. And as you mentioned, with Tampa Bay Lightning, they have the added Gulf breeze. And then they have the uh, uh, the peninsula there that adds several breezes. So you can get uh, thunderstorms developing at any part of the day. And so that's why it's so prolific there. But there have been studies recently showing that some of that is shifting over into uh, tech parts of Texas and parts of Texas are taking over as uh, the lightning capital of the United States. So it's interesting to see some of these shifts and patterns uh, that you see some kind of like with the tornadoes and uh, as well, some of the shifting patterns. Uh, not sure if it's uh, uh, going to take hold uh, forever, but at least some of the recent years, Texas has taken over. And then worldwide, you know, you look at places on, uh, like Colombia, Peru, places in South America there, places along the equator or near to the equator. They have uh, lakes there uh, where they're just producing thunderstorms every day. I mean, you think 
of Florida as being clockwork. I mean, these lakes, you can go out there to the minute and these thunderstorms are developing at that minute. And so that's one of my uh, goals is to go out there and just see some of these uh, thunderstorms develop because I mean, you, I mean, just to know to your watch exactly when those thunderstorms are going to form. I think that's pretty cool to go out there and see there, but you know, India, India has, we're working with a, a government out there, Madhya Pradesh, uh, second most prolific lightning location in India. Uh, we're working at getting some of our technology out to them and protecting some of those citizens because they have a lot more injuries and deaths uh, than what the United States does. So uh, there's a lot of places worldwide where we're hoping to uh, get some of our technology and uh, start saving some lives. Speaking of saving lives, and I, I was thinking back to even when you were talking about thunder snow, that certainly could be quite dangerous if it's a bit difficult to hear the thunder and to see the lightning. I mean, they're certainly probably not as many people out when the, in these thunder snow events, but if you are out, uh, that what you were saying about the ability to actually detect the lightning or hear the thunder, that could elevate risk for someone out. And that leads me to my next question. Um, many folks stay in, in their homes during uh, lake effect snow events or in any kind of lake uh, uh, lightning events in general where there may be uh, lightning. Our, talk to us about, again, when the thunder roars go indoors is sort of something that we always say. But talk to us about if you're advising a government or advising a local government on sort of a best practices for lightning safety outside and inside the home, what are some of the things that you would advise? Right. Well, I mean, I think the first step is actually giving them a tool and resource. And I mean, it doesn't have to be with Flash, although we are proud of our technology, but, you know, they, they need the tools and resources. They need something that tells them when the lightning's coming that makes them, has them making educated decisions. So, you know, we don't want people just to go out and look and say, hey, look, it looks dark out there or wait for the actual lightning, God forbid, to come or, or wait till you hear thunder. You know, sometimes that can be too late. And so you can have you may hear thunder from a dist distant thunderstorm, but there may be something forming right over you, too. And so, you know, what we want is we want those tools that are looking into the storms that are just providing people something simple and says, hey, it's time to go inside. And so, you know, once you have those tools in place, then, yeah, the, the thing to do is always to seek seek the most shelter that you can that is possible. And so, um, you know, going inside is definitely always going to be number one. That's going to be, you know, seek a sturdy shelter inside uh, that's uh, insulated and kind of away from the the, the dangers that are lightning. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've also heard people who say, oh, you're fine if you go in, you can take a shower, you know, and all that. No, no, you need to stay away from those water sources as well. Uh, you know, just ride the thunderstorm out, you know, uh, and, and you'll be fine generally if you're indoors. But the, the, the critical key that we've been missing, Dr. Shepard, I think, though, is giving the tools and the resources to the public, to the decision makers uh, that, hey, it's time to go inside instead of just this, um, you know, either waiting for lightning to see lightning or hearing thunder or at the end of it, just waiting 30 minutes because something could be happening at minute 31 just as easy as it could be happening at a minute 30. And so we need to get rid of this archaic technology and actually apply some science and technology behind it. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Jason Deese, former National Weather Service meteorologist and now 
uh, with Flash Scientific Technology founded the company. And you've been hearing some of the discussion. And I think it's important to understand because I, I think you've, you're on to something here, obviously. But I think we often talk about lightning from the perspective of individual risk and safety to our kids or a golfer or fisherman or so forth. But the point you made earlier about the impact of lightning on the aviation industry, uh, that's the one that comes to mind. But are there other highly lightning sensitive industries? There are. There are. So the sectors we're focused on um, aviation, obviously, um, the statistic we always uh, use for that is a, a Boeing jet burns a gallon of fuel per second circling a runway, which is hard to fathom when you think about that. But they do. And so if we can get those planes down just you know a few minutes faster, we've done pricing studies uh, with some of the airlines and shown that we can save literally tens of millions of dollars per year. Uh, with per airline and just getting those planes down faster and in the air faster. And then that's not even taking into account, um, you know, some of the jet routes and, and and deviations that we can save money on there. So really excited about that, but then the insurance industry as well. And so, you know, studies prove that you can uh, minimize the damage to large pieces of equipment. So if a piece of equipment costs a million dollars, if you shut the power off to that equipment prior to lightning striking, you can greatly minimize the damage to that. So now we have a way of actually letting these people know, hey, lightning's coming. You can greatly minimize the damage and and, and take the power out. So insurance is going to be huge for us in terms of that. Uh, we're also going to be, you know, as I should mention, we're not just focused on lightning, we're focused on other aspects as well. So we already talked about how hail and ice leads to lightning. Well, as a byproduct of that, we can forecast from an AI perspective, artificial intelligence and deep learning, we can forecast uh, the hail as well. And so the really cool part, I'm going to geek out on you a little bit. No, please do. We love it. (laughs) The really cool part about what we're able to do is by using the 30 years of data and leveraging the past to predict the future, we can produce a forecast every two minutes now. And so we're not relying on this numerical model data. You know, when you and I came up, we waited, what, 12 hours for a new forecast? Right. right. And then it went to, you know, six hours. We thought everything was great. And now you got some that are at an hour. But now we don't have to wait for a new forecast. We're, our model is based on the past and using that past to predict the future. So we can do every two minutes. So we can produce a hail forecast every two minutes, a lightning forecast every two minutes. Uh, we're going to be doing tornado forecasts here by the end of the year, automated tornado forecasts every two minutes. Let me stop you there for a second, because I just taught about this in um, my satellite meteorology class at the University of Georgia, because uh, we were talking about lightning flash jumps and those types of things. Uh, um, many of the listeners, you and I certainly know this, but many of the listeners to the podcast may not realize that there are studies that show that there is a relationship between, I mean, I guess the lightning flash rates of two sigma lightning jump and potential tornadic activity. So is that the sort of realm of, 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 of inquiry that you're going down that road? It's part of it. Yeah, Dr. Shepard. I mean, that'll be one aspect of what we look at, but there's also hundreds of other model parameters and rotational velocity, um, you know, the satellite data, the radar data, all of those are going to be incorporated in. And so not all tornadoes are created the same. And so they don't all come from the exact same ingredients. And so, uh, but what we're able to do with our system is I mean, it's almost like a black box, but it takes in all of this data. It just takes it all in, all of this past data and says, hey, I've seen this before and it produced a tornado and I think it's going to produce a tornado. Yeah. And so certainly those aspects, though, of lightning jumps, precursors to tornadoes, those are incorporated in there as well uh, to show the uh, tornado formation. Yes. Yeah, so, so it sounds like you're really uh, sort of using 
emerging technology and artificial intelligence, machine learning, and sort of some old school techniques of analog forecasting as well, and kind of marrying those two. It is. It is. I mean, I remember when I was working with the National Weather Service, the, the SIPS, SIPS Institute out in St. Louis, I think they were doing some great work with analogs and showing winter storms. And I used that all the time. And I, it was always in the back of the mind, my mind. I was like, listen, you know, when when we do numerical weather prediction and it sees uh, a nor'easter, it's like this is the first time it's ever seen that nor'easter. It sees a hurricane. It's like this is the first time it's seen that hurricane. It's a very inefficient way of doing things. Why don't we use I mean, we've had hundreds of nor'easters. We've had hundreds of hurricanes. Why don't we use that data? We've had thousands of thunderstorms. We know what leads to a lightning strike. And so use that data uh, to our advantage. And it's a lot more efficient way of forecasting. And again, allows us to forecast a lot more rapidly. So we're not waiting. So I envision a day, Dr. Shepard, when, you know, everybody in America was waiting for the six hour point to get a new hurricane forecast. You know, that's just the way things are. But I envision a day when we're not waiting six hours. Maybe we can produce another forecast in two hours and get it out there faster because we're just using past data. Yeah. And I think one of the things that comes to mind is I wanted to ask you this question, you know, as we get more sort of data uh, in that database, that, that the training database or that we can learn from, I mean, that, that will certainly increase the fidelity and accuracy of the forecast. For the listeners, Jason, talk to them about how we what what we do we have out there at our disposal to detect the lightning in the first place. I mean, I, I know we have ground based systems and satellite systems, but give the listeners a one hundred and one and just what's out there that you're corralling for your product. Right. So uh, there are the the actual sensor base. They're you know located across the entire United States. Those sensors require upkeep. Uh, you have to install new sensors. They have to be replaced. So there is a lot of work that goes into actually maintaining those sensors. But there's uh, two or three main companies uh, right now that uh, you know maintain sensors and have a, a dense network of lightning uh, that shows both the cloud to cloud, cloud to ground, total lightning. Uh, but we also, uh, in recent years, you know, we have the satellite data. And so uh, the GLM data, as you're familiar with, uh, which comes in, and that's been really helpful for us. It's, you know, provided by the federal government. And so we get that feed uh, for free. And so um, shows uh, uh, a lot of the lightning aspects that a lot of the sensors was perhaps not quite into detail. Uh, some of the statistics that I've seen, you know, uh, maybe 75% accuracy, depending on the time of day. Uh, that you're looking at the, the GLM satellite data, uh, whereas you're going to get higher accuracy with the sensors, but certainly it's better than what we used to have. So we're, as a company, we're taking in all of those detection networks. And so we take in all the data that we can get. And so um, we don't need the lightning because we're using other parameters uh, that lead to thunderstorms. And so we're forward focused, you know, we're looking at what's going to lead to that first strike and what's going to lead to that first thunderstorm. But certainly we're taking in all of that detection data too, because it just helps our verification, helps our model, helps our initial starting point for when we want to forecast an hour out. Yeah, we've been doing a little work with that geosynchronous data, the GLM on the go satellite with one of my students at the University of Georgia. So a big shout out to Jeffrey J.D. Burke, who has been looking at lightning around urban spaces using that data and agreed it's producing a product called Total Lightning. It's a little bit different than what we would get from some of the ground based sensors, uh, like our good friend John Trostel is operating the North Georgia Lightning Mapping Array at Georgia Tech, for example. Um, But certainly the more information we have, the better. Uh, for all of us. Um, Jason, we're coming to the end here. We'll give you the last word. Sure. No, I just want to pre- I appreciate my time on here today and uh, kind of 
talking to the listeners a little bit about lightning dangers. I mean, lightning is really cool. I mean, we talked about the cool aspects of it. I mean, what's cooler than thunder snow and some of these Western New York aspects that you saw from the lake effect snow and seeing the thunder and you saw Jim Cantor and how excited it is, you know, but there's also this aspect of, of danger with lightning. So, you know, as a company, you know, we're looking to save lives and hopefully that we can uh, get these products out to the people who need them the most, which are the, you know, the moms with the kids at the swimming pool and the youth sports across America. Get these kids safe and uh, keep us from having to go on to the field, Dr. Shepard. You know, I'm going to take a host uh, privilege here and ask you one final question. because It came to mind as I was listening to you because you and I have very similar backgrounds. We're meteorologists, but you've gone off and started a company. So perhaps there's a young entrepreneur out there or a young student uh, that would be curious about how that works. So give us a little quick one on one on how how do you start a company? Sure. I, I probably would have been the last candidate you ever would have thought would have done something like this. And so uh, but I had a real passion you know, for saving lives and, and, and thought that the solution could do it and, and, and knew that the government wasn't the way uh, to do this. So, you know, I don't I, I don't know. I, I'll ever know where that confidence came from to leave the weather service and go do this. But, you know, uh, you know, honestly, it was as simple as watching. I, I hate to admit this, but uh, watching Silicon Valley on HBO. And I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. I, I didn't know anything. So I had to go do my one-on-one and, and, and learn all these terms. And it, it's really about the terminology and learning what these guys are talking about and learning what VCs are talking about and valuation and all of this. And I'm still learning about all that. But the, the point is, if you have a passion that is deep enough, uh, don't let anything stop you. Go after what, go after your dream. Go after what you think you can do. Um, you'll figure it out. There's going to be stumbles along the way. I'm still stumbling around along the way, <laughs> still trying to figure things out. Uh, but we're, we do figure things out. And so uh, I would encourage anyone uh, to go after the dream and, and go full force. Yeah, and, there, and I'm increasingly at many universities, I know uh, Florida State, my alma mater, and University of Georgia, and likely Georgia Tech as well, have entrepreneurship programs or business incubator programs, even for the students, if they have an idea. So there are opportunities or you can do like Jason and just go find the information yourself. And, and right. there's so much information out there on these things. But I really, I, I wanted to not leave the show without taking advantage of asking you that question. Jason, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Beats podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Uh, We'll see you next time on Weather Geeks.